are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. This is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today for this weekly, whenever possible, YouTube live chat session where on Thursday afternoons, uh, 12 noon Pacific, uh, I gather together and open it up for a half hour, 40 minutes, whatever it takes on my YouTube channel. And I answer questions, usually about Bible and the Christian life, uh, and respond to comments the very best I can. I don't claim to have all the answers, but certainly uh, I'll give you whatever I can. And uh, sometimes it's a question that I have to get back to a week later. I'm especially pleased that I could join us, join you all today, because it was just last Thursday that I was doing our broadcast live from Brazil. And folks, I just got off the plane and actually from the car from the plane just not 10 minutes ago. Uh, so we flew from Sao Paulo to Houston, Houston to Los Angeles, got in the rental car in Los Angeles and made the drive straight away here to our home in Santa Barbara. And I was really pleased that I got here just a couple minutes in time to join us for today's YouTube live chat. So um, I ask that you have a question and just go ahead and post it. Um, if you have a comment to make, go right ahead and do that. Uh, it's wonderful, again, that I was able to do this. We do have a number of questions that have come in either in the comments on YouTube uh, videos that we have or other channels, and so I want to try to get to some of those questions. So let me take a look at them. Uh, Anthony asks this question, and hi, Anthony. He says, I noticed about 30 years ago preachers used to call themselves apostles, but I never really understood their title. Where did all this start? Well, Anthony, I don't know if I can give you an exact answer for that. Other than say this, that within the last 30, 40, maybe even 50 years, there's been something in the church that is it's a little hard to describe because it's a little bit underground. Yet at other ways, it's right out in the open. It's called the New Apostolic Reformation. And it sometimes goes by those letters N.A.R. New Apostolic Reformation. Overall, I think it is not a healthy or good thing for the church, because what it does is it advocates the rise of People in the church that are recognized as apostles and basically people should give their obedience, their receive guidance from, allow these self-recognized or otherwise recognized apostles lead the church. And let me just say, I don't believe that there are apostles in the church today in that sense. Sometimes we talk about the difference between apostles with a capital A letter, you know, apostles like there were in the Bible, uh, Peter, James and John and Paul and the rest of them that were recognized. Those from that initial foundational generation that gave us the scriptures. Other times we talk about apostles in a much more generic sense of those who are sent or those who are maybe special ambassadors. Maybe in a generic sense, we could talk about there being apostles today. But I don't like using the term at all, because most of the time people get kind of weird. People who give the name or, or use the title for other people can get weird about it. 
Listen, I don't think God has given that kind of authority to people in the church today over other believers, the same kind of apostolic authority that the first century apostles had. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, if I'm remembering that specific citation, says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And that foundation is given to us in our New Testaments. So we, we don't need that foundation again. Um, there's always a need in every generation for a fresh work of the word, fresh proclaimers of the word of God, fresh messengers of the word of God. But the authority that the first century apostles doesn't need to be replicated in church today. So, Anthony, I'm kind of wondering if that's what you're getting at when you talk about uh, you noticing apostles more in, last, in the last several years. OK, um, next uh, from Rebecca. What is your opinion and or view on the view on the missing books of Enoch? I am not sure this is something I should be reading. Well, Rebecca, let me put your mind at ease. If you're thinking about the books of Enoch, you don't have to read them. The bottom line of the books of Enoch is they're not scripture. Now, it is true that in the book of Jude, there's a citation from the book of Enoch. And it's true that in other passages, there's kind of allusions to the book of Enoch. But it doesn't make the book of Enoch inspired scripture. It just means on the particular line that was quoted from the book of Enoch, that was scripture when Jude quotes it. Just like Paul quoted pagan poets, and it doesn't make the pagan poets uh, everything that they wrote scripture. It just means that particular line that Paul quoted from the pagan poet was scripture. In Paul's context, Rebecca, what I guess I'm just trying to say is these apocryphal or books alongside the scriptures, they can be interesting reading. They can sometimes be beneficial reading. They can be great historic or cultural background, but they're not the same as scripture and should not be treated as such. So, Rebecca, don't feel like you have to read the book of Enoch uh, or other such apocryphal books. There can be I, I don't think you should be afraid of them. Just don't regard them as inspired scripture. I hope that's helpful for you, Rebecca. And again, thanks for your question. All right, Alice. Uh, wow, I can finally catch you live. Well, thank you, Alice. I'm glad you could catch us live. Uh, Sonny, we're watching next door. Sonny's my next door neighbor, and he says he's watching next door. Well, I'm happy about that, Sonny. We just got home. Uh, we'll catch up later about what's been going on in neighborhood. Uh, Sean says, hi, pastor. What in the world did Jacob do to the goats at the end of Genesis chapter 30? Oh, Sean, 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 you're asking a very difficult question that I don't have a precise answer to. OK, what he's referring to is something at the end of Genesis chapter 30, where it says that God blessed the goats that Jacob owned. Um, Jacob worked out a deal with his father-in-law Laban, how he would receive his wages. And look, sometimes I get the details of these things confused. I'd have to look back in the scripture themselves. But I believe it was they took the whole flock and the speckled and spotted sheep that came forth from the sheep and the goats that were of a solid color, those belonged to Jacob. If, if I'm remembering it right, it, if it's not that exactly, it's something along those lines. OK, now here's the point is that Jacob stripped the bark off of 
almond branches and laid them in the water that the solid colored sheep and goats drank, and they seemed to produce more speckled and spotted offspring from that. Look, I, I don't think there's any scientific thing behind that. I don't know if somebody wants to do some research about the chemical content of stripped almond branches and what that might do in chromosomes and genetics and all the rest. I think that Jacob was just doing something and it had God's blessing upon it. You see, that's the whole larger context there, Sean. God was blessing Jacob and increasing his flocks, increasing his holdings, ultimately making it to where he could no longer stay with his father-in-law, Laban, and needed to move back to the promised land. As for the exact mechanism as to why those almond branches in the water of the solid-colored sheep and goats, why they produced more proportionally speckled and spotted offspring, I don't know. And I... I'm anxious for an explanation. I think the only thing we can say categorically it is is an example of the blessing of God, no matter what specific mechanism you use. That's a great question, Sean. All right, let's go down here. Oscar says, hi, God bless you and your ministry. Thank you, Oscar. Blessings to you. Calvary Arlington, um, nice to see you. I have a sore tooth. Can you see me tomorrow? No, I can't because I'm going to be in Santa Barbara, number one. And Jim Jacobson is writing from uh, Calvary Arlington, where he is the pastor. And he's referring to the fact that on this Brazil ministry trip that I just got back from, I mean, literally now 20 minutes ago, I parked the car. Uh, we went over there to do a retreat for a Calvary chapel in Sao Vicente, uh, Brazil, which is in the province of Sao Paulo. And next to another city called Santos, a famous city, uh, beach cities there in Brazil. This church was having a retreat around carnival season. And we came over to do that retreat. And very happily, there were people from four or five or six other Calvary Chapel churches there in Brazil who also joined us, uh, especially some of the pastors and leaders of those churches. So it was a church retreat for Calvary Chapel South Descent. But at the same time, we had a, several pastors, I don't know, a dozen or so from five or six different churches or works. It was a great time. We really enjoyed it. But preceding the retreat, we did a couple days of dental ministry. My wife, Inga Lil, for more than 20 years, has been doing dental care out on the mission field. And God has blessed this ministry. He's gifted her to do it. She does the whole thing. She does cleanings. She does fillings. She does extractions. She does all other kind of dental care that she can do. And, and part of it is the wisdom that God's given her as to what she can do and what she can't do. But what was interesting about this particular trip was that my wife has been doing that ministry for 20 years. And I would like to think that I have been supportive and, you know, helpful to her. But I've never actually joined in the work and been part of her dental team until this last trip. It was a brief two-day dental clinic that we did in a poor neighborhood uh, part of Sal Vicente called Mexico 70, and it was a blessing. So, Jim, no, I'm not going to do your tooth. I will recommend a good dentist, though. Thank you for that, though, Pastor Jim. Doreen Virtue says, thank you for warning about the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. That was in the first question I answered to uh, uh, from our listener or our reader. Oh, come on. Uh, from Anthony, of course. 
Uh, she says, I just finished reading your wonderful free and clear Exodus devotional and I'm starting near and true. Thank you for your books. Well, Doreen, thank you. I do have a couple of devotionals in print. Uh, you can get these off of Amazon. You can get them from the website, EnduringWord.com, wh- whatever you please. Uh, but thank you. And again, Doreen, it is worth warning about the new apostolic reformation, the NAR. Uh, there is a tremendous book by somebody, I can't remember the title off the top of my head. Um, I want to say it's something like God's New Apostles. I'm going to put it in the comments of the uh, YouTube video. But man, th- there is a tremendous book out there, and it's been out for a few years. A- and what I think is tremendous about it is that it's a eminently fair treatment of the New Apostolic Reformation. Sometimes people in their apologetics zeal uh, aren't quite careful with the facts and they end up making some false accusations. I feel that this book about the New Apostolic Reformation has been very careful about that and it's very fair in its dealings. So I'll put the title of the book in the comments after this video is posted. You can check back for that and it's a book I genuinely recommend. Uh, for some reason, the name just escapes me. Okay. Uh, Jim Jacobson has a real question now. He says, how soon can we expect audio links on the app? Uh, Jim, I can't give you a definite answer for that. What, what Pastor Jim is referring to here is we've just come out with an enduring word app, uh, maybe about a month or two ago. Now, the app right now is just for the iPhone. Soon, the app will also be for Android devices. And right now on the app, All it delivers is the text commentary. Uh, Some of the improvements we're making in the next uh, editions of the app is, number one, you'll be able to size the text in the app. It'll have a scalable feature. Number two, you'll be able to look at the text in landscape mode, which it doesn't have now. And then third, it'll include links to the audio uh, and video, especially the audio podcast. All those things are, I'm hoping that within the next week or two, those will be released. But, you know, these projects sometimes take longer than we expect. We got our people working on it. And again, the idea is to improve the app for both iTunes as it is available now, the iOS system, and then uh, coming soon for Android. Uh, We're blessed when anybody can use that app. Okay, next question from Alice. Alice says, hi, David. My best friend is Christian, but her husband is Jewish. She's telling me that she believes her husband will go to heaven because he's a good guy, even though he rejects Jesus. I love them both. How would you answer that? Well, Alice, that's a difficult question to answer. It's not difficult because the question's mysterious. It's difficult because it's not an easy answer to hear. Here's the thing. We must begin with the idea that's repeated many times in the New Testament that Jesus shows us perfectly the nature of God. John speaks about this in John chapter 1 and really throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the perfect and full revelation of God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Therefore, uh, by the way, Paul also speaks about this very specifically in his letters, even calling Jesus the image of the invisible God. Whatever God is, Jesus is the expression of it. So therefore, if somebody says, well, I love God, but I reject Jesus, 
they're actually rejecting God. Whatever God they love is basically a God of their imagination. Because the God who really is, the God who exists in heaven, the God who created the worlds, the God who will judge all mankind on the last day, that God is perfectly revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So, we have to remember that to reject Jesus is to reject God. You need to find as loving a possible way to talk to your friend about that and to raise a concern in her soul. And it may only be a prayerful concern because sometimes it's not the best job of a spouse to win their corresponding spouse to Christ. As Peter says, sometimes that work is best done without a word by the way they live. But certainly for the sake of her prayers, she needs to understand that if a person rejects Jesus, they are rejecting God because Jesus is the perfect manifestation of who God is. Uh, anyway, Alice, thank you for that question. Mary says, um, yes, uh, thank you, Mary. He says he won't if he rejects Jesus because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Alice says, I know Mary, but he's my best friend. I'm not sure how to hurt her. I understand why she needs to believe that. Alice, again, um, we need to pray for you and your friend's situation. And I just pray God will give you a loving, uh, beautiful opportunity to share your heart with your friend that um, when your friend's husband is rejecting Jesus, he's really rejecting God. Um, Ruth Gordon says, welcome back. Thank you so much for that, Ruth. We had a wonderful time in Brazil, and I can't wait to check up with you, and I hope everything's been going well for you as well, Ruth. Um, let me get to a few other questions that have come in over uh, email. These are questions from Eva. Eva writes and says, uh, hello, David. Greetings from Cambodia. It's a blessing to see you and your videos. We're greatly blessed by your com commentary. Uh, she says it's hard to join because of the time. Now, I know Eva. Eva is a believer from Germany, from the city of Lipstadt. Her father is a pastor and a friend and a colleague of mine, uh, Rolf Crede. And uh, Eva's doing wonderful work, doing the Lord's work as a missionary, as a servant in Cambodia among believers in a world that needs to know Jesus in uh, Cambodia. So I'm happy to answer these questions. Okay, Eva asked this question. Number one, studying the Old Testament laws on sacrifices, I was wondering if the priests would ever clean the items of the tabernacle. With all the sacrifices of the items soon would be covered in blood, adding the heat, and even in the holiest, blood would be sprinkled. I was surprised not to find anything on that. Well, Eva, you're asking an interesting question. Did they clean the things in the tabernacle in the temple? Let me give you an answer uh, the best I can. You're, you're right. The scriptures don't say anything specifically about cleaning the items. It does talk about ceremonial washings of the people, that is the priests that are doing the service. We, we know about that. And these ceremonial washings were sort of a big deal in Judaism of that time and to the present day. But we do know this that there were vast reservoirs of water needed for the temple and the tabernacle of fun function. This is why the laver or the pool of water that they used for these ceremonial functions, it was given no set size. 
part of that is to communicate the idea that it should be big, even enormous. And we know from archaeological excavation that in the areas around the Temple Mount in ancient Jerusalem, there were huge cisterns and reservoirs for water. So we know that they had these massive resources of water, no doubt used to clean what would have been a very bloody area. The sacrifices that the Jews did under the Old Covenant produced a lot of blood and a lot of guts from inside of animals, and it was necessary that they clean these things up. So uh, the, the access and importance of water indicates for us that there was cleansing. Now, you did in, in, raise an interesting point. I don't believe, I can't prove this, I don't believe that they cleaned the blood that was applied in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And it is said that there was just a sprinkling of blood. So I don't think it was like coated in blood, but blood was sprinkled. And, and to my animation, they left it there as a memorial of that blood. But I can't prove that. That's just my estimation. Now, Eva's second question reads like this. Number two, what if a person had become unclean without noticing it and would then go to offer sacrifices? Would that person receive the same judgment as someone who knew that he was unclean and still went? No. But remember, part of the sacrificial system was to uh, atone for sins you didn't even know you committed. That was part of the idea, not the only idea, but that was part of the idea on the Day of Atonement. Remember, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there were all different kinds of sacrifices that both individuals and families were supposed to offer. There was the burnt offering, the sin offering, the thank offering, the grain offering, offerings relevant to dedication, on and on. But there was also supposed to be a general offering on behalf of the nation on the Day of Atonement. Part of the idea behind the Day of Atonement was to atone for sins that we didn't even know we committed or that the ancient Jewish person didn't even know that they committed. So, yes, there was an idea that sometimes we sin without even knowing it. And the Bible makes a distinction between that kind of sin. It talks about, and this is a great poetic phrase. I don't know how much of it is accurately translated from the Hebrew, but I just know the phrase from English translations. It talks about to sin with a high hand. I just kind of love that image sinning arrogantly, sinning knowingly. But the Bible does have sacrifices that make provision for sins that we commit without even knowing. All right, I'm, since I'm already into this with Eva's questions, let me get to her last two questions before checking back on our chat bar. Her third question is this. We often hear about the tradition of the high priest entering the holiest with a robe tied to his leg just in case he would die in God's presence. Do you know if there are any historical accounts of that ever happening? Eva, not to my knowledge. To my knowledge, there are no historical accounts of that. Now, here's the thing. The idea that the rope was tied to the high priest's leg in case he died and could be drug, dragged out of the Holy of Holies without having a person to go in there. The Bible doesn't exactly say that that's what the rope was for. We suppose that. Now, I regard that as a proper supposition, that it's a proper estimate to make that that's why 
the uh, rope was tied around his ankle. That's why there were bells around the hem so that they could tell if the high priest stopped moving or was struck down suddenly. But we have to admit, the scriptures don't exactly tell us that that was the purpose of the bells or don't exactly tell us that that was the purpose for the rope around his ankle. That's a supposition. Now, I regard that as a fair supposition to make. I know that there's other people who don't regard it as a fair supposition to make. But as far as I know, there is no historical record of some being of a high priest being struck down in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. The closest we have to this is of Nadab and Abihu being struck down in the days of Moses. And you can look that one up for yourself. But again, uh, it doesn't seem that they were in the Holy of Holies. They were in the holy place and they didn't have the rope around their ankle and such. Okay. Final question from Eva, number four here, she she says, in your commentary on Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, you mention, quote, the mistaken teaching that God can allow nothing holy in his, uh, excuse me, nothing unholy, its presence. It's important that I get that sentence right. Quote, the mistaken teaching that God can allow nothing unholy in his presence. Can you explain this a bit? Since this statement is often used to explain why unholy sinners cannot be with God. And thank you, Ava. Okay. If I'm happy for the opportunity to explain what I meant by that line in my commentary. Listen, I would just take us back to the book of Job. The book of Job tells us that Satan and Satan's angels, his companions, his fellow demonic spirits, Satan came and spoke to the Lord in heaven. Now, if there's any unholy being in the universe, it's Satan himself. And it also says that Satan, as the accuser of the brethren, is in the Lord's presence, is before the Lord, accusing believers day and night. Satan, this unholy being, apparently has access to God's presence in heaven. To me, this demonstrates the truth of the idea that um, God can allow unholy things in his presence. Now, when preachers say uh, God can allow nothing unholy in his presence, and that's why you have to come to Jesus and have your sins forgiven, or you'll never make it to heaven, they're expressing a right idea under wrong reasoning. God will not allow us ultimately to be in heaven. If we do not have our sin problem resolved in Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he did on the cross, unless we come to Jesus through his work on the cross. But it's not because God like would explode if something unholy came into his presence. It's because God's justice demands that all sin be resolved. And essentially, there's two places in the universe where God has said sin will be resolved. Sin will either be resolved in hell in the final judgment that will last through eternity or sin will be resolved at the cross where Jesus Christ bore the sins to take upon himself the sins of all those who believe upon him. So uh, this is why. But it's not as if God, you know, as I said before, almost jokingly, would explode as if sin came into a presence. We know this because there are several instances in scriptures where Satan appears to be in God's presence in heaven.
So, Eva Marie, I hope those are helpful for you. Uh, let me come back to this, um, Ruth, in reference to a former question we discussed, brings up Acts 4.12, which says that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Absolutely true. Jesus, if a person rejects Jesus, there's really nothing else. Now, th- there is a interesting and a fair discussion to be had about those who have never heard the name of Jesus, who know nothing of Jesus' gospel, what happens to them. But for somebody who consciously rejects Jesus, then there is no other name under heaven by which they must be saved. Now, I, I think that applies to all of humanity, but I'm saying especially in the case of the person who rejects Jesus. And then um, Mary uh, has another follow-up to Alice's question about how Alice can help her friend. So, Alice, uh, we pray that God will give you a lot of blessing and a lot of guidance as you seek to care for your friend in Christian love. Really, that's what it's all about. It's about caring for those people in Christian love and ministering unto them the very best we can. May God give us the wisdom to be able to speak a... um, word of truth in love, especially when it comes to talking to people about loved ones, that, that um, it's hard to reckon with the fact that they really need Jesus. But of course they do. So listen, uh, we're going to pretty much wrap it up here. I'm so happy that I could deal with those who have joined us on the live chat. Remember to click the like button. Apparently it helps for visibility. Thank you to all the new subscribers to our YouTube channel. We're very blessed that we just keep adding subscribers in a wonderful, steady way. Uh, thank you to those who pray for the work of Enduring Word and who pray for me. Just getting back from this trip from Brazil. Look, uh, yeah, we're a little tired. We've been flying through the night, but it's a joy to be able to do this. I can't tell you how happy it made me to know that I was going to be able to come back and at our normal time have this uh, live question and answer time with you on for what is me a Thursday afternoon. Whatever part of the world you are, it may be a different time. We'll do the same thing next Thursday afternoon. I hope you can join us then. I hope you can tell other people about it and come ready with your questions and comments, and we'll look forward to dealing with them. Thank you for those who pray. Thank you to those who support the work of Enduring Word. We're very blessed to be a part of what God is doing in this. So we'll see you next week. And again, thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.